Parashat Yitro. I've given this shir before, but we're going to do it with a new twist today. Uh, and uh, it's a very important topic because it's something that you probably have thought about and people think about um, in terms of trying to understand the um, immutability of the Torah and the fact that the Torah is the ultimate document of Jewish faith. And when you see something which is um, so jarringly anomalous, you want to understand it. And, you know, I guess that people who just want to have blind faith have problems with anything, but how many of us can truly admit to having blind faith? And therefore, when we come across something which doesn't make much sense, we like to understand it. Uh, and the Ibn Ezra, who we're going to look at today, is a great rationalist, as you're going to see. Uh, he was a medieval scholar, he lived in the 12th century, and he didn't believe that you should just take things at face value. We try and understand something, we want to understand what is going on, because if we're meant to be people of faith, it doesn't mean we have to be people with no brains. And I'm assuming that all of us have a brain, and that being the case, that we want to engage it somehow to try and understand something that doesn't make much sense. So, everybody has heard of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, we all know what that is. That the Jewish nation, seven weeks after having left Egypt, there was an exodus, a great moment of salvation and redemption. The Jewish nation had been enslaved for many, many years in the land of Egypt. Somehow, as a result of the ten plagues and ultimately the plague of the killing of the firstborn, Pharaoh relents, he allows the Jews to go, tries to kill them again um, on the shores of the Red Sea. They escape through dry land when the Red Sea splits, the Egyptian army is drowned, and this is already a week into the Exodus. Six weeks later, they, at, they are at the foot of Mount Sinai, and God says to them, I'm going to give you something very, very special. What is that special thing? It's the Torah. How am I going to give you the Torah? Well, the Torah actually wasn't completed until 40 years later. So that means the text of the Torah, the actual words that we understand as the Torah, uh, the, the five books of Moses, the first five books of the Hebrew Scriptures, were only completed at the moment that Moses died and just before the Jews began the conquest of the land of Canaan, of the Promised Land. However, the essence of the Torah was received at Mount Sinai. I'm not going to go into the details of it, but I am going to say that they are contained within something called the Aseret Hadibrot, the Ten Commandments. So when we read through the Ten Commandments, we have to understand that it's like reading through the headlines of a newspaper. I hate to make that comparison. We don't always read the articles. We tend not to read the editorials when we first glance through the newspaper, but we want to know what's going on. So when we flick through Google News or whatever it is, we look at the headlines. If you want to know what are the headlines of the Torah, what are the, the, um, the banners of what it means to be a Torah Jew, it is the Ten Commandments, okay? So the Ten Commandments, you can find them in chapter 20, of Exodus, of, of, of uh, Sefer Shemot, and you can also find them again in Parshat Va'etchanan, that's the sixth peric of, uh, of Devarim, of Deuteronomy. So, why do we find them again in Deuteronomy? We already have them in Yitro, why do we need to have them repeated? So, Moshe Rabbeinu, in recalling this incredible period after the Exodus, you know, in anticipation of his own death and of the fact that the Jews would, be have, would have to become an independent nation and take care of themselves. He wanted them to have a sense of their own history, of their own background, of the fundamental ideas that are going to keep them together. And therefore, while he told them in general terms some of the stories, many of the stories that there were that were their foundational narratives, when it came to the Ten Commandments, he repeated those Ten Commandments word for word. Verbatim. That Moshe Rabbeinu, it's the only thing that is verbatim. In Devarim, 
taken from somewhere else in the Torah. That means, word for word, Moshe Rabbeinu repeated to the Jewish nation, 40 years later, exactly what they had heard at Mount Sinai. So important are these fundamentals of Jewish faith, that I can't just say, oh, and you received the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, and then move on. Moshe Rabbeinu had to say exactly what it was that they received on Mount Sinai, in order for them to understand the magnitude of this foundational, um, from the foundational set of ideals, of rules, of mitzvot. Okay, everything, so far, everyone agrees with me? It's fine. There's one huge problem with what I've just said. It's not word for word. It's not verbatim. So if I, I were to tell you, you need to memorize, you're an actress or an actor, you need to memorize these lines because we're going to film you or you're going to be on stage and you're going to have to say exactly what it is, for example, what Shakespeare wrote in Hamlet. Okay, so you're going to take Hamlet's soliloquy and you're going to learn it word for word or take you a few hours make sure that you know it obviously you want to have the correct intonation you want to make sure that you're saying it in the most dramatic and true way possible you're going to go on stage and you're going to say Hamlet's soliloquy imagine you're Hamlet and you get on stage and you say the soliloquy but you don't say what Shakespeare wrote you add in a few words and you take away a few words and you change it round because you think that the way Shakespeare wrote Hamlet's soliloquy wasn't quite good enough and you'd like to improve it. Have you repeated Hamlet's soliloquy? I think the answer is very evident to all of us. No. I mean, it could be that what you've said is extremely moving. It could be that what you've said makes a lot of sense in the context of the audience who's listening to it, but you haven't said Shakespeare's words. Now, I want to, I mean, obviously there will be some who will disagree with me. I would never in a million years try and compare Shakespeare to God. Right? I, mean, I think that makes sense. Do you, do you all agree? You're with me here, okay? Shakespeare is Shakespeare. God. Hashem is Baruch. HaKodesh Baruch Hu. Shalom. Should I continue? He gives you the Ten Commandments, Moshe Rabbeinu. And 40 years later, you decide you want to repeat those Ten Commandments to the Jewish nation. You're taking God's soliloquy. And you are now changing a whole bunch of words in those Ten Commandments because you think that the audience needs to hear it differently. Really? Who are you? Who do you think you are? If you're saying that these are the words that God gave on Mount Sinai, make sure that you stick in every detail to the exact wording that God used when he gave the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. That's not what Moshe Rabbeinu did. So that, if you want to have, it's not quite a nutshell, unless it's an extremely big nut. But in summary, that is what this shear is about. We're going to try and understand why it is that in Parshat Va'etchanan, when Moshe Rabbeinu and Moses repeated the Ten Commandments, he didn't do so by using the words of the Ten Commandments. He changed it up in more than one place. Now, in the first source sheet I've given you, I've worked on this very, very carefully, I have put side by side the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments of Parshat Yitro, that's on the right, and the Ten Commandments of Parshat Va'etchanan, that's on the left, and I've highlighted, using my incredible Word doc yellow highlight feature, all the differences between the Aseret Hadibrot in Yitro and the Aseret Hadibrot in Va'etchanan. As you can see, unless of course you are colorblind, there are quite a number of differences between the first set of Aseret HaDibrot and the second set of Aseret HaDibrot. We're going to go through some of those differences in a moment. Some of them are much more significant than others, but any difference, you will agree, is a difference too many. 
doesn't matter if it's one difference or 35 differences, any difference in the way Moshe Rabbeinu repeated the Aseret Adibrot in Parshat Va'etchanan, any difference that he made between that and Parshat Yitro is significant. Why would he make that difference? I'm going to put it to you even stronger. We all come, I mean, we all subscribe to a Talmudic version of Judaism. What is the Talmudic version of Judaism? Well, one of the major precepts, it's going to come up later in the share, of Talmudic Judaism is that the Torah is a foundational document. What does that mean? I'm going to, I mean, I'm talking now to Americans. Not everybody that's listening online is an American, but at least here we're among Americans. We have something called the Constitution. The founding fathers of the United States of America put together a constitution. That constitution is the foundation document for constitutional law, which of course over the past few weeks has been poured over in very great detail, right? Constitutional law. What is the basis of constitutional law? We are trying to work out exactly what it was that the founding fathers of our nation had in mind when they wrote something in a particular way and with reference to the past few weeks, what is the definition of high crimes and misdemeanors? A very important constitutional question, high crimes and misdemeanors, does it have to be something criminal? In the context of a president, is it something that's you know, generally not a good thing? What did, what did they mean? Now, those are, found, those are the founding fathers of America. What about the foundation document of the Jewish nation? If we're going to suggest, and we just did, that the Aserat Hadibrot, the Ten Commandments, is the foundation of the Jewish faith, that is what God delivered to us at Mount Sinai. What are we going to say if Moshe Rabbeinu, who's the primary teacher of that foundational document, takes it, and changes it. What are we meant to say? By the way, what does that say about us, you and me? We can take this Aseret HaDibrot and we can change it as well. If Moshe Rabbeinu changed it, why can't we change it? So those changes have to be understood in the context of what it is that Moshe Rabbeinu changed. This is, as I said earlier, the only part of the Torah that Moshe Rabbeinu repeated verbatim in Devarim. So it's got to be teaching us something. And if we see that there are these changes, clearly those changes have to have significance, or if they don't have significance, we need to understand why. Okay? That's all an introduction, which should be no indication as to the length of this shear, because sometimes the introduction is much longer than the shear. I'm not sure that will be the case today, but I just wanted to say that was all by way of introduction. Now let's look at the first, by the way, this uh, comparison document, this uh, piece which has the Aseret Adibrot of both Yitron and Chanan is available online. You can download it. So we see here that in the initial two commandments, you see there's 10 commandments here separated. In the initial two, there's only minor differences. You're going to see that Ibn Ezra dismisses those differences, and we're going to get to why. The first major difference of the two commandments, of the Ten Commandments, of the two versions of the Ten Commandments, comes in the, um, in the one about Shabbat. What is the first word in Yitro, in the Ten Commandments, in the commandment about Shabbat? It's the fourth commandment. Zachor et yom ha-Shabbat Remember the Sabbath day in order to sanctify it. What is the first word when you go to Parshat Va'etchanan? Shamor et yom ha-Shabbat Shamor, what does shamor mean? Shamor means observe. Strictly speaking, it means guard, right? If somebody is a shomer, he is a guard. Shamor et yom ha-Shabbat Make sure that you guard the Shabbat, you observe the Shabbat in order to sanctify it. Zachor means remember, Shamor means observe. That's quite different. 
Those are two very different things. So which was it? Was it Zachar or was it Shamar? Any of you ever said L'chadodi? So if you say L'chadodi, I mean, it switches it round. It's based on a Ma'amar um, Chazal that says Zachor v'shamor b'dibur echad. We say on Shabbat, Shamor v'zachor b'dibur echad. What does that mean? That somehow both Zachor and Shamor were said in the same commandment. Dibur is Dvarim, in the same commandment, but it's a double meaning. Dibur means the same um, expression, the same speaking. So both Zachor and Shamor were said at the same time. That's the implication. There's another problem here, that in the second set of commandments, in Parshat Va'etchanan, something is added. Kasher tzivcha Hashem elokecha. As God, your God, has commanded you. Do you know why you should observe the Shabbat? Because God, your God, has commanded you. Does it say it in the first set of commandments? No, it doesn't say it. It doesn't have any mention of it whatsoever. So which is it? Is it that Kasher Tzivcha Hashem Elokecha is the correct version of the Ten Commandments? Or is it without it? If Moshe Rabbeinu is repeating exactly what was heard at Mount Sinai, at Mount Sinai, did God say, Kasher tzivcha Hashem elokecha, by the way, speaking about himself in the third person. Okay, which would be interesting. Let's go a little further down. Further down, it's, it lists all the people who need to observe Shabbat. People and, as it turns out, animals. Anything that belongs to you needs to observe Shabbat. So in the first version it says, you may not do any malachot, any type of work on Shabbat. Ata, you, uvincha and your son, uvitecha and your daughter, avdecha, your male slave, vaamatecha and your female slave. Obviously, we're talking at a time when there was a slave-driven economy. And then in the first version, it says, uvahemtecha and your animals. And any stranger who may be within your gates. Okay? All of those people, and without going into too much definition, I think most of them are self-evidently identified, but without going into those definitions, all of those people mentioned above and animals need to observe Shabbat. How does a cow observe Shabbos? I never saw a cow making Kiddush, but you get the point that somehow a cow is not allowed to work on Shabbat which really means you're not allowed to work the cow on Shabbat or allow the cow to work on Shabbat, nor your slave. Your slave is the engine of your economic success. You're not allowed to allow a slave to work on Shabbat. We're all good with that. That's in Parashat Yitro. Look at the parallel text. So it says the same thing. So in the first version, we said, and your animals. But here we go into great detail. Vishorcha, your ox, vachamorcha, your donkey, vachol vehemtecha, and all your animals. So which was it? Which one did God say? We just said that Moshe Rabbeinu repeated verbatim the second time round exactly what he'd heard the first time round. So which version is correct? Is it the version that just has the word uvehemtecha? Or is it the version that says vishorcha, vachamorcha, vachol vehemtecha? So you see here there is a significant difference. I'm going to highlight one more difference and we may come back to some others later on, okay? But let's look at the major, major difference between the first set of commandments and the second set of commandments as repeated, quote-unquote, verbatim by Moses in Parshat Va'etchanan. Why do we keep Shabbat? So if you're reading the first version, the one that was said by God at Mount Sinai is recorded in this week's Parsha, Parshat Yitro, in Perik Chaf, chapter 20 of Exodus, Shemot. Why do we keep Shabbat? Because in six days, God created the heavens and the earth. The sea, and everything contained therein. Vayanach bayom hashvi'i, and he rested on the seventh day. Al Cain, therefore, 
Beirach Hashem et Yom HaShabbat Vayikadshehu. God blessed the Sabbath day and he sanctified it. Do you want to know why we keep Shabbat? Read that sentence from Kisheshet to Vayikadshehu. That is the reason why we, every single week, identify Shabbat as a very special day of the week. God rested and sanctified that day. What does it mean? Don't ask me for meanings. This is not a sheer in theology. I'm simply repeating to you what God said as recorded in Parshat Yitro at Mount Sinai. We're all with it? So far, so good? So now, Moshe Rabbeinu gets up 40 years later and he's giving a drosha and he says, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I'd like to tell you exactly what it is that God told you, your ancestors as it happens to be, your parents and grandparents, at Mount Sinai 40 years ago, shortly after you departed Egypt and were rescued from certain death at the Red Sea, this is what God said to you. You must keep the Shabbat. Okay, we've already discussed the Shamor and Zachor difference, which we'll get to. Why do you have to keep Shabbat? What would you imagine Moshe Rabbeinu would have said? Etc, etc. That's what Moshe Rabbeinu should have said. That's not what he said. Do you know what he said? Do you know why you must make everybody keep Shabbat? So that they, the slaves and female slaves, observe Shabbat just like you do. And therefore you will remember that you were slaves, you too were once slaves in the land of Egypt. Don't mistreat your slaves like you were mistreated. Don't become the one that is abused that becomes the abuser. Shabbat is a Shabbat also for the Avdecha and Amatcha in your family. For the Lord your God drew you out of there with a mighty hand of Israel an outstretched arm. Therefore did God your God command you to do the Sabbath day. Did we see that in Parshat Yitro? Let me do a double take now. It's very easy because I've actually prepared the sheet and there it is in front of you. You don't even have to get a crick in your neck to work it out, that God did not say that at Mount Sinai. So Moshe Rabbeinu, who has just committed himself to repeating verbatim exactly what it is that God had told the Jewish nation at Mount Sinai, now says something completely different. If I were to tell you, I'm going to say Hamlet's soliloquy, and then I say something completely different. It could be a beautiful, beautiful piece from Noel Coward, but ultimately, it is not William Shakespeare. Moshe Rabbeinu has made a commitment to repeat word for word, verbatim, what God had delivered to the Jewish nation at Mount Sinai when he gave them the Torah at Ma'amad Har Sinai. And he's not done that. Now, we don't have any record here. You know, if, it, if this was a lecture, Somebody would put up their hand and say, uh, 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 excuse me, Mr. Moshe Rabbeinu, that's not what Hashem said. We don't have a record of that here. So we need to rely on what Chazal taught us and what the commentaries, the Bible commentaries taught us as to why it is that the record of the Ten Commandments in Parshat Va'etchanan is so different in this aspect and a number of other aspects from the version that we received and that we know we received from the record that is recorded at Mount Sinai. Have I, have I given you a broad perspective? I think so. There's more to say, as you can see, because there's more yellow here. There's more highlighting here on the document. We're going to get to that. So now what I want to do, and I gave this share five years ago here at the shul, but now I'm using a, a summary that was put together. And in fact, what I have done I'm, I'm guilty of the same crime, if it's a crime, as Moshe Rabbeinu. Because Moshe Rabbeinu took the Ten Commandments and changed them. I've taken 
Rabbi Dr. Mardi Lokshin's version of the Ibn Ezra, and I've changed it mercilessly. So I present, I'm thanking him here on this document, and you can download it online on the website. But actually, what I've done here is I've abbreviated, I've summarized it, I've changed his words, I've done everything. But his, uh, his text formed the foundation of the document which I've prepared for the share today, and which you can download online. Ibn Ezra on the Ten Commandments. Who was Ibn Ezra? Very brief introduction. Ibn Ezra was a Spanish Bible commentary. He was a rationalist. He was clearly a great philosopher. And he believed that the Torah, even though it is open to multiple interpretations, has to be understood in its most basic format if we are allowed ever to extemporize. I'm going to give you an example. Okay? Some years ago, as a shul, we went downtown to the Modern Art Museum, the Broad. Do you remember we went to the Broad? I wrote an article about it. It was, it was fascinating. You know, modern art has, has, um, is either something you go for or you don't go for. As, as I always put it, it either enthralls you or appalls you, right? But I always wonder when you see some of the more outrageous modern art pieces, whether or not, if you ask them, the modern artist or the artist that created this piece, to paint something of the quality of, let's say, Rubin or Michelangelo, whether they have that ability. Just because they like colors and can throw them onto a canvas, are they truly artists that have the skill to represent real life in that um, two-dimensional, one-dimensional form, okay? So, I don't know the answer to that question. I have my doubts about many artists, but I would suggest that when, it's, when it comes to learning Torah, you have to have that perspective. And that's what Ibn Ezra wants to project. He wants to say that if a Pasuk says, Hashem which means Hashem spoke to Moses, Lamer saying or to say, that that's what it means. Now, if you want to reinterpret that posuk to mean something else, that doesn't mean that its original meaning has no meaning. We haven't removed the original meaning. What we're saying is that there is an alternative, like a parallel perspective called drush, which can enable us to see a different angle about this particular topic. But it doesn't remove the original translation. Says the Ibn Ezra, when we're studying Torah, don't allow Midrash to influence you to believe that the basic meaning of the text has no meaning. Unless we have a compelling reason to dismiss the original meaning or the actual meaning of the words in the Torah, we can't simply say, you know what, that makes no sense, therefore we've come up with our own meaning and that makes more sense. So if we have a problem in the Torah, as we do between the Ten Commandments in Yitra and the Ten Commandments in Vaitchanan, where Moshe's repetition is not in fact a repetition, that creates such a big anomaly. It's, it's okay for the Ibn Ezra to dismiss a Midrash. He can say, okay, the Midrash is the Midrash, but the actual meaning is this. But when suddenly the Torah itself offers an alternative perspective, now we have to understand on that basic meaning of the words in the Torah, why Moshe Rabbeinu said something which had already been said in a completely different way from the way that it was originally said. For this reason, the longest Ibn Ezra in the Torah is in Parshat Yitro on the Aseret Hadibrot. When I say longest, by far the longest. It's like 10 times longer than anything similar in the Ibn Ezra. So important, because, as I said before, this is the only time that the Torah verbatim repeats anything else that's in the Torah of any length. I mean, there are other instances where psukim are repeated, but this is the only time where an extended passage of the Torah is repeated and ostensibly verbatim. And as it turns out, it's not verbatim, so the Ibn Ezra devotes a lot of attention to it. Let's have a look. Look at the um, at the source sheet that I put together. The Ten Commandments, as recorded in Parshat Va'it Hanan, is different 
it's actually uh, Perik Hey, not Perik Vav, is different to the record of the Ten Commandments found in Parshat Yitro, as I said, that's in Perik Chof in chapter 20, both in terms of small differences and also more substantive differences. The most detailed treatment of the differences between the two versions is presented by the medieval Torah commentator Rabbi Abraham ibn Ezra. He began with a list of all the differences, including those that appear trivial, but which are nevertheless present. And here I've um, included a section of the Ibn Ezra that deals with the differences um, between the two. And significantly, um, I'm going to look at the second paragraph, okay? The first version of the Aseret brought that we read, we read in Parshat Vayitra, and then the second one of Parshat Ve'etchanan Shniya. That's the second version of exactly the same thing. From the beginning of the Ten Commandments until Asher Yisait Shemol Ashav, En Shinui Ben There's no difference. I'm going to add a word here into the Ibn Ezra. Significant difference, because if you look at the document I prepared for you, you'll see there is a little bit of yellow before Lotisad Shem Hashem. Okay, so you can see that clearly it, it, there are differences that he, he doesn't recognize as differences, and you're going to see later on why he doesn't reference us. However, from the commandment regarding Shabbat, which in the first version begins with the word Zachor at Yom HaShabbat Lekadshor, until the end of the Ten Commandments, you can spot multiple differences between the two versions. Barishona, Zachor. Uvishniya, Shamor, that we said already. In the first version, we have the word Zachor, remember, the day of the Sabbath. And the second one, we have Shamor, observe the day of the Sabbath. Gam, Sham Bachrona, Tosefet, Kasher, Tzivcha, Hashem Elkecha. The words as God, your God has commanded you, are added in. Barishona uvehemtecha, we said this already, uvishniya tosefet v'shorcha v'chamorcha. We can see that in the second one, we talk about the ox and the donkey, not just vehemtecha, your animal. V'kashem ikol eile, ki varishona katuv ta'am Shabbat, as we said already. In the first one, we have the reason for Shabbat, ki sheshet yamim. And the second one, we have a totally different reason, v'zacharta ki evet hayita. Barishona katuv schar kvod av vaem shehu lemani arichun yamecha. We have a reward that is given for those who observe the commandment to honor your father and your mother, that they will have extended lives. Vechem besheni. And the second one is the same thing, but rakla hosif. There's added on at the end. Uleman yitav lecha, so that it should be good for you. Also, in the commandment regarding honoring your parents, we have the additional words, as God your God has commanded you. In the first one it says, thou shalt not murder. You should not uh, commit adultery. You shouldn't steal. You shouldn't bear false testimony. But in the second one, it says, that remains the same. Thou shalt not murder. Not really easy to understand this as a difference, but here you go. I guess if something's meant to be repeated verbatim, it must be repeated verbatim. And in the first one, it says, in the second one, it says, a different description or different definition word used for a false witness. In the first one, they're called a lying witness. In the second one, they're called a false witness. So why this change of definition? If Moshe Rabbeinu is slavishly following the original text of the Aseret Adibrot when he repeats it in Vayit Hanan, why is he using a different word? Barishona katuv lo tachmod beit reecha, lo tachmod eshet reecha. You shall not covet the house of your friend, your neighbor, 
and neither the wife of your neighbor. It changes it round. It says, And then it says not, It says, Changes the word and the order. In the first one, it doesn't say field. In the second one, it adds the word field. So why is that added to the second version if Moshe Rabbeinu is repeating it verbatim? In the first version, you have servant and maidservant before ox and donkey. But in the second version you have ox and donkey before servant and maidservant. In the So he um, offers a range of complaints, of issues that exist between the first version, which we must assume is the version, the original text, and the second version, which is the repeated version 40 years later, which seem to indicate that Moshe Rabbeinu, perhaps he was losing his memory, or perhaps deliberately he was changing things up, or perhaps, as Bible critics would, have you, would, would say, that um, actually we have different versions of things. And the first version is not necessarily any more correct than the second version. We have two traditions, that's what a Bible critic, a Gentile Christian maybe, or maybe non-Christian Bible critic would say, that we have different versions of the same things in the Torah, like we have different versions of stories in Bereshit. We have different versions of the Ten Commandments, one as recorded in Exodus and the other one as recorded in Deuteronomy. Now we can't say that because we hold that the Torah is the ultimate source of truth. And if Moshe Rabbeinu is repeating the words of the Aseret Adibrot in Devarim, he has to be repeating the words of the Aseret Adibrot as we find them in Shemot, in Parshat Yitro. And if he isn't repeating them, then we need to know why. We need to understand what is the foundation of any changes that may exist between Devarim and Shmot. So, yes. We, yes, I know. So we're going to get to that question. It is one of the most puzzling aspects of this Ibn Ezra. We're going to get to it. Okay, it's, it's, it's such a stunning question that I, I, you know, it's not something that I would ever dream of leaving out. The Ibn Ezra has raised a difference that does not exist. Okay. Anyway, in the first instance, the Ibn Ezra represents us with the traditional rabbinic solution, an exercise in what we would call Talmudic apologetics, which he then dismisses as absurd for a number of reasons, although he does not offer any answer as to why Chazal would have resorted to absurdities in order to reconcile these two texts. If you go to page two, I've, from here on, I've actually translated everything, with the help, obviously, of Dr. Mardi Lokshan. I've translated everything that Ibn Ezra wrote uh, and that I'm now going to read in his name, um, because, uh, so we don't have to go through the Hebrew, but the Hebrew is there. I've left the Hebrew in if you want to go through the Hebrew text. And actually, on the website, when this goes out online, you'll find the full text of the Ibn Ezra um, from beginning to end. Here I've split it up and I've left some bits out, but you'll find the full text on the Ibn Ezra on the webpage. Says the Ibn Ezra, when we examine the words of the ancient rabbis of Chazal to see how they related to this issue, we found that they said, Shamor v'zachor, or zachor v'shamor actually, b'dibur echad, were said together. This is a Gemara in Rosh Hashanah, Look it up. This suggestion is even more difficult than all the problems that I listed above, as I shall explain. God forbid, God forbid that I would say that Chazal spoke anything, said anything that was incorrect. Our minds are nothing compared to theirs. But the people of our generation insist on taking their comments literally. 
What does it mean when we say Shamar v'zachar b'dibur echad? What, what are we saying, Zachar v'shamar b'dibur echad, as it says it in Chazal? That it was said at the same time. Says the Ibn Ezra, that is not the case. As I shall explain at the end, after I have explained all the difficulties that arise if we take this statement literally. What does it mean? I'm, I'm just going to add this in here. What does it mean if I say, Zachor v'shamor b'dibur echad? What is the literal understanding of that ma'amar chazal? That God somehow conveyed the same idea at the same time of both Shamor and Zachor, and that we heard it. Correct? So, imagine, I mean, we don't have two voices that can speak at the same time, but imagine we had two voices, and we could speak with two tongues. One tongue is saying Zachor, and the other tongue is saying Shamor. We're suggesting, because God is the master of everything, that when he gave the Ten Commandments, using this Ma'amar Chazal as proof, he said both Zachor, that was the first time, and the second time he said Shamor. I'm going to take this even further. There are those that say, Ibn Ezra doesn't make reference to them, although he seems to be indicating he knows about them, who say that on the first Luchot it said Zachor, and on the second Luchot, it said Shamor. Both versions are correct because they both are a representation of what God said at Mount Sinai. And miraculously, he said it together. And even more miraculously, which Ibn Ezra is going to dismiss out of hand, we heard it together. The problem is, I mean, Human beings are human beings. I know we have two ears, but we can only hear one thing at the same time. There's not many people that I'm aware of that can have multiple conversations and focus equally on everything that anybody is saying to them. That if it exists at all, it would be extremely unusual. To suggest that all the Jews who came out of Egypt heard Zachar v'shamor b'dibur echad is beyond ludicrous. So we now have to understand, again, don't forget that Ibn Ezra is talking as a rationalist. He's saying these were human beings who came out of Egypt, they're now at the foot of Mount Sinai. We're not talking here in the world of the supernatural. This is not the Hobbit. You know, this is not science fiction. These are human beings who need to hear the Ten Commandments because this these Ten Commandments are the foundation document of Judaism. Don't tell me that they heard something that it's impossible for people to hear. Let's look at what the Ibn Ezra says inside. He says as follows. Ibn Ezra lists no less than a dozen reasons as to why it makes no sense to take this statement of Chazal literally and apply it across the board to both texts, the one in Yitro and the one in Bait Hanan which would mean that everything in both texts was miraculously said by God simultaneously when he spoke out the commandments. Here are some of Ibn Ezra's arguments. I've listed them. I've not put them all in here because I don't want to go through the whole Ibn Ezra. I told you it's a very long Ibn Ezra. And, you know, usually the shir is on Wednesday and remains on Wednesday. I don't want it schlepped all the time, all the way till Thursday. So we're going to go through five arguments or five questions that the Ibn Ezra poses on the idea of Shamar v'zachor, zachor v'shamar b'dibur echot. Lama lo nikhta barishona zachor v'shamor gam ken v'shenit. So if it's true to say that both zachor and shamor were said by God, why say one in the first one and the second one in the second version? Say them both. It doesn't do any harm. If it's true that Hashem said both Zachor v'shamor, it should say Zachor v'shamor at Yom HaShabbat l'kadsho. Why does it say Zachor in one and Shamor in the other one? It's a very logical question. Question number two. The Shabbat laws have different rationales, right? Instead of the rabbis addressing the issue of Zachor and Shamor, two words that basically mean exactly the same thing on the face of it. According to the halacha, they don't mean the same thing. Okay, so Zachor, one is talking about the 
obligations of Shabbat and one is talking about the things you're not allowed to do on Shabbat, right? So Zachor is, you, you must, for example, make Kiddush on Shabbat. It says Zachor et Yom HaShabbat Likadshot, which, by the way, is the reason we say Sheshit Yamim Tabovet, the part of the Ten Commandments that we say in Kiddush on Shabbos morning comes from the Aseret Hadibrot, right? The, the part that talks about Shabbat. Why? Because Kiddush and Zachor are one, one and the same thing. Shamar is all the uh, prohibitions of Shabbat. Okay, but essentially it means the same thing. If I tell you Zachor and Shamar, you know, on the most basic level, for a layman, let's call it that way, you're not a legalist, you're not a halachist, a layman, Zachor and Shamar mean the same thing. And saying that they were said at the same time, it would have made more sense for them to ask how whole verses that do not have the same meaning as each other were miraculously said simultaneously. Remember what I said before? That the reason we gave for Shabbat in the second set of Ten Commandments is totally different than the reason we gave in the first one. In the first one, it was about the six days of creation and the seventh day of Shabbat. In the second one, it's about the fact that we were released from slavery in Egypt. That's why you're not allowed to enslave your slaves on Shabbat. They, are, they have to have a day of rest. So which is it? But forget which is it. How do you say the same thing at the same time if they're different. So are you saying, if you're going to just say it's one word and somehow you are, um, I don't know what the word would be for a tongue being able to do two things at the same time. There's some version of ambidextrous that applies to your tongue, no doubt. But that would apply perhaps to one word. It can't apply to entire sentences. So when Chazal said, Zachor v'shamor b'dibur echad, did they mean everything? was said at the same time, in which case, how do you say two completely different sentences at the same time? Have you ever been to one of those operas where two people are singing, right? How many people can you focus on? I and mean, it's beautiful, the harmonies are beautiful, but can you actually focus on what they're both saying? No, you can either listen to one, you know, the bass or the, or the tenor that's singing their part and the soprano that's singing their part. You can't listen to both, you can hear both, but you can't listen to both. There's a big difference between hearing and listening. There's Ten Commandments, it's not something you just hear, it's in the background, it's music playing. It's something that you need to focus on, you need to understand. So what God said, Sheshet Yamim, and it said, Eretz um, Mitzrayim, at the same time, and we were meant to get both. So what does it mean? Zachor v'shamor b'dibur echad. How many times have you heard me say, if something doesn't make any sense, then it has no meaning. You have to be able to make sense of something. You know, this is why I always go a little crazy when people, you know, come up with a beautiful Hasidic idea. It sounds lofty and beautiful, but it makes no sense. Unless it makes, unless it resonates with my brain, the fact that it makes me feel good has no meaning. If Zachor and Shamor have meaning, we need to be able to understand what it means. I can't suggest that two totally different sentences were said at the same time, and that that has meaning if I can't understand how it works. That's number two. Number three, God quotes himself in the third person. It says, Ka'asher tzivcha Hashem elokecha. Why would God say, as God, your God has commanded you? That's the type of thing I would say if I would tell you about God, your God, commanding you something. So why does God speak about himself in the third person in the second version in Vayitzchanan? Or Moshe Rabbeinu, who's repeating it as if it were God's words. Number four. So this is a very good question. This is like super logic. If I were to tell you that there's parts of the second commandments, the second set of ten commandments, that don't exist in the first set, how do you say that at the same time? It says, In the first version, it doesn't say, So what? There's two voices, and one suddenly went quiet, and the second one, in a single voice, says, Again, it doesn't make any sense. So sentimentally, it's a beautiful idea. Practically speaking, it makes no sense. And number five, even if we say that God is capable of saying two things at the same time, and this we already brought up, since God's speech is not like human speech, we know that God can do all kinds of things. He created the world, after all, so he can certainly say two things at the same time. 
But still, how did all the Israelites understand what he was saying? A person who hears both Zachor and Shamor pronounced at the same time won't understand either word. I've summarized Ibn Ezra's arguments against the concept of Zachor and Shamor B'dibur Echad, which is the main Midrashic, based in something that it says in the Talmud, main Midrashic answer, apology, for the fact that the second set of Ten Commandments is somewhat different from the first set. In any event, as a result of these questions, Ibn Ezra simply dismisses the idea that God said both versions of the Ten Commandments simultaneously. Or, indeed, that there were two versions, one on the first set of Luchot and one on the second set of Luchot, which, by the way, we were all taught in, in elementary school, right? That's what we were taught. Doesn't make any sense, says Ibn Ezra. And instead, he proceeds to explain the existence of two versions of the Ten Commandments in a different way. Let's look at part one. Ibn Ezra's explanation of the differences between the two versions of the Ten Commandments can be divided into two parts. The ones that reflect different content and the ones that reflect trivial wording changes. So remember, I already made that differentiation for you before, but the Ibn Ezra focuses on that. As far as Ibn Ezra is concerned, the Ten Commandments in Exodus represent God's precise word. So let's take as the foundation text that which is contained in Perik Chof in Parashat Yitro, okay, in, in Shemot. The Decalogue, as it appears in Yitro, represents the words of God with no additions or deletions. These, this is, by the way, Ibn Ezra's words. Only they, in other words, not the words found in Beit Hanan, were found on the Luchot of the covenant, on the, on the Luchot that Moshe Rabbeinu received, and those are the ones that he brought down from Mount Sinai. However, 40 years later, these are my own words, then Moses retold their history to the Israelites in Sefer Devarim, and he deliberately reworded some of the Ten Commandments to make them easier to understand. Do you know what Devarim is? It is the crossover point between Torah Shebichtav, the written Torah, and Torah Shebaal Peh, which is the taught Torah. I know it's always called the oral Torah. It's not. It's the taught Torah. We have the foundation text, which is called Torah Shebichtav, and we have something called Torah Shebaal Peh, which is the Torah that is taught, that is based on that foundation text. There is actually a gray area, a crossover point, it's called Sefer Devarim. It's the fifth book of the Torah, which was recorded, I've given a shir on this, in Moshe's own words. Why? To convey this idea that we have Torah that is taught. How can we convey that idea if Moshe Rabbeinu repeats word for word everything that he heard from God? So at the, at the, in the only case that we have in the Torah of words of the Torah that are repeated verbatim, they're not repeated verbatim. They're repeated in such a way that Moshe Rabbeinu offers explanatory help because it's Torah Baal Peh. It's not because it's included in Torah Shebichtav, but it's indicating to you that we, when we study Torah, are not meant to slavishly devote ourselves to the words, but we need to understand those words. For example, he says, that's not what it says in the first version. He adds those words. He wants to enhance our understanding as a teacher. What is he called? Moshe Rabbeinu. He's our teacher. He turns Torah Shebichtav into Torah Shebaal Peh. And he gives an example. He shows that this is a normal thing to do when you repeat somebody else's words. Um, he gives the example of Esav and Rivka. He gives other examples, but here's one example that I've, I have included here. Yitzchok said to Esav, this is in Breshis Perichov Zayn, why am I blessing you? Or why am I asking you to do what I'm asking you to do? Um, so that I can bless you before I die. Now, Rivka then goes to Yaakov Avinu and says, Yaakov, I think that you need to take the blessings. He says, what blessings are you talking about? So she says that Yitzchak just told Esau, I will bless you before God, before I die. Is that what Yitzchak said? No, it's not what he said. He said, I'm going to... 
So what, how is she repeating it? So Rivka added the words in order to impress on Yaakov Avinu the importance of the brachas so that he would agree to her plan to, to go and do whatever it is that he did. But even if Yitzchak had not said it, we know for sure, because Rivka repeated it in that way, that the brachas that he was giving to Yaakov Avinu were Lifnei Hashem. In other words, what Rivka was doing, she was repeating the words of Yitzchak. She was adding to those words something that Yitzchak never actually articulated directly, but which of course he meant when he told of what he was going to do. Similarly, Moshe Rabbeinu added a different explanation of the Shabbos commandment in Va'etchanan. With the words, um, Moshe alluded to the reason for Shabbat observance found in the Ten Commandments in Yitro, namely that God had rested on the seventh day after six days of creation. However, at the same time, Moshe Rabbeinu realized that it wasn't clear why slaves were forbidden to do work on Shabbat. Why can't my slave work on Shabbat? How often have we dealt with this question, halacha, right? We have non-Jews, Gentiles working for us. For us, What can they do? What can't they do? Halacha is, is uh, not so simple. Okay, we don't have slaves today. But if a slave belongs to you, I know it's hard to understand that concept because it's so foreign to us. A slave is not somebody who works for you for money. They belong to you. But they do everything that we need to have done. How come a slave can't work on Shabbat? What's wrong with the slave? I'm not working on Shabbat. I didn't do a malacha. The slave did it. The slave can't work on Shabbat because you were once a slave, says Moshe Rabbeinu. The whole concept of Shabbat is not just to do with the six days of creation, because if that was the case, I hate to say it, people would have kept Shabbat before Mitzrayim. There's no record of anyone keeping Shabbat, at least formally. We know that Avram, Yitzhak and Yaakov kept the mitzvot, but there's no record of any requirement to keep Shabbat in the thousands of years before the redemption, the salvation, the exodus. So why do we keep Shabbat now? In addition to the six days of creation, which God mentioned in, um, in the Ten Commandments in Yitra. There's another reason which God did mention, but which of course he meant, because he was talking to you guys, which is that you were slaves in Egypt. You know what slavery means. You need a day of rest. So do the slaves. Just like you needed redemption and salvation, a slave needs a moment when they can have time to themselves. That is something that Moshe Rabbeinu adds, says the Ibn Ezra, in the second set of commandments. Now we're looking at the second part of the Ibn Ezra, this is on page 4, which is Ibn Ezra's theory that Moshe's changes can't explain most of the differences between the language of the Ten Commandments in Yitra and the language he uses in Bayit Hanan. I mean, in other words, what purpose could Moshe Rabbeinu have had, for example, to change the word from v'sharah and his ox to sharah, his ox? Vavs are important. Ibn Ezra reluctantly explains that only because of his contemporaries' mistaken notions, he is compelled to explain something that he would rather not. And now I'm going to quote Ibn Ezra's words. I am unable to resolve all these difficulties until I provide you with an introduction as to how Hebrew works. God is my witness, he says. He knows my hidden thoughts. If I didn't have to explain these difficulties, I would remain silent. Quite dramatic, don't you agree? Referring to himself in the third person, Ibn Ezra proudly adds, Amar Avraham HaMechaber. This is how he begins that piece. Here is what Abraham, the author, says. This is what he says. This is a quotation. The standard pattern of people who use Hebrew is that sometimes they explain their words at length, but sometimes they say what they have to say with less words, just enough so that the listener understands their meaning. Don't read meaning into something that doesn't have meaning. In other words, Hebrew speakers sometimes express an idea at greater length and sometimes in fewer words. It appears inconsequential. The fact that Ibn Ezra says this, it's extremely consequential. Why? 
because as we're going to see, the Ibn Ezra builds on this and he applies it to speakers and writers of other languages. In practice of wise people in any language, the practice is that they preserve the meaning of any speech or text and are unconcerned about changes in wording as long as the meaning stays the same. What's the problem with this Ibn Ezra? It flies in the face of everything we know about Talmudic um, inference. So the Talmud uses vobs and changes as the basis and foundation of halakha. And yet Ibn Ezra is saying, no, it's no big deal. You can change the words. What's the big deal? It's not important. I think that if you understand Ibn Ezra in that way, you're not really understanding Ibn Ezra. Ibn Ezra is not dismissing the Gemara. What he's saying is that we have two parallel universes. We have universe number one, which is called the Torah, which is delivered to us in a narrative style of people talking. And in that narrative style, don't read too much into the difference between the way something is said in one place and the way something is said in another place, because that's just the way people talk. However, when it comes to deriving, inferring halakha, those differences matter. So when we look at the differences between the two sets of um, commandments, the Ten Commandments, we're very taken up with this idea, that, oh my gosh, it says, why does it say it with the extra verb? Vobs are so important, says Ibn Ezra. Yeah, they may be important when we need to derive a halacha, but they're not important in terms of Moshe Rabbeinu repeating something that he heard 40 years earlier. Don't take it too seriously. The Ibn Ezra also belittles another aspect of the Midrashic method that obsesses us. The willingness to ascribe meaning to orthography. What's orthography? The conventional spelling system of a language. Specifically, whether a word is or is not written with a letter Vav serving as a marker of the vowel oh or U. So whether Shara has a Vav or does not have a Vav in order to give us the vowel is extremely important in Midrashic terms. It's not important in terms of Moshe Rabbeinu repeating it and recording it in Devarim. And by the way, this also feeds into another topic, which is how many words there are in the Torah and how many letters there are in the Torah and how many spaces there are in the Torah, which is a much broader topic to which Ibn Ezra is not referring and which doesn't relate to the specific instances in the Aseret Adibrak, but broadly speaking may have huge significance. In our generation, he says, people ascribe meaning both to extra-lettered spelling and to the missing-lettered spelling. If they only ascribed meaning to one of them and saw the other one as the default, I would remain silent. Know that meaning must be preserved, but not wording. In other words, you can't have it both ways. You can't say that with extra-letter it means one thing and without the extra-letter it means something. You can't have it both ways. Either this is the way to spell something, and if you spell it the wrong way, it has meaning. Or the other way is the way to spell it, and if it's spelled the first way, it's got meaning. But you can't say it's spelled both ways, and then it has meaning as well. You can't have it that way. In other words, as long as Moshe Rabbeinu conveyed the message of the Ten Commandments accurately, any stylistic changes that he made in the text are inconsequential, and an intelligent reader should not pay any attention to them. That's the end of the Ibn Ezra. But it's not, we have a postscript. It's the postscript that Ruthie raised a few moments ago, which is the difference identified towards the end of the questions of the Ibn Ezra between the two sets of Ten Commandments, a difference in the order of Shorova Chamorah. Um, um, in one place, it says Shorova Chamorah, sorry, it says Avdova Amato before Shorova Chamorah. And in the second version, it says Shorova Chamara uh, before, sorry. Barishona Avdova Amatok Kodem Shorova Chamara. The first version lifts not coveting your neighbor's male or female slave before his ox or his donkey. But in the second version, he lifts his ox or his donkey before his male or female slave. So which is it? And he identifies this as a huge problem. The problem is that this difference does not exist. And it's something that has puzzled the commentaries on Ibn Ezra for a very long time. So Ruthie is not the first person to notice it. Many people have noticed it in the past. And we had this very um, elevated view of Rishonim. 
and Ibn Ezra is no different than any other Rishonim, Rishonim were so punctilious and so precise and so on, on, their, on top of their game that we can't imagine they would make a mistake like this. I'm just going to read you a couple of things and then I'm going to tell you that online, I've, I've actually printed it out here, I engaged in correspondence with Rabbi Dr. Sabato in Barilan University, who's a renowned expert on Ibn Ezra. So I discussed this with him. I don't want to suggest to you that his solution is a solution. It isn't, but I'm going to post that online and you can read it online. My correspondence in 2012 with Rabbi Sabato, Mordechai Sabato, about this exact question. But let me just read here um, some ideas. One of the differences which we've just read is this difference that turns out not to be a difference. But the order of the items in the final verse of the Ten Commandments is the same, both in Yitro and in Vaitchanan in the Torah. Va'avado va'amato, excuse the extra vav, shoro v'chamoro, his male and female slave, his ox or his donkey. So the super commentators on Ibn Ezra are all very puzzled by this. There's one very famous super commentator on Ibn Ezra called Yehuda Leib Krinsky. He's not a Chabadska. He was a... 19th century muskil. You can look him up. I put the um, Wikipedia article about him here. I've linked it. Quotes a number of 19th century scholars who were convinced that Ibn Ezra could not have made such a mistake. Some of them proposed the unsatisfying explanation that Ibn Ezra, uh, the Ibn Ezra commentary that we have was not really written by Ibn Ezra, but was collected and edited by his students. And they felt somehow, I guess, that by attributing such an error to a student that it was okay, but that the master should never be suspected of such carelessness. I'm not so happy with that, because let's be honest, if they were great students of Ibn Ezra, even if we don't know their names, they were also showing him. So I, I'm, I'm not satisfied with that as an explanation. Asher Weiser, so he is a 20th century um, Bible scholar, um, also lived in Eretz Yisrael. He calls Ibn Ezra's misstatement a ta'ut mitza'eret, an unfortunate error. But he also points out that this is not the only time that Ibn Ezra misquotes a biblical verse. I'm going to get back to that. In fact, almost all medieval Bible commentators misquote biblical verses from time to time, sometimes because they were quoting from memory, and sometimes because they were using biblical texts that differed from ours. I'm not sure I agree with that last statement either. That I'm, not, I'm not sure I agree with that statement, but I want to go back to the statement where he says that Ibn Ezra misquotes a biblical verse. I'm very unhappy with that. And the reason I'm unhappy with that is because that's okay to say if he's misquoting a, a biblical verse to support something that he was saying. Like, he's making a point and he wants to say, and the posuk says, V'nemar, etc. Or, uh, you know, Kashe Kosov, etc. But here, this is central to his entire piece. This biblical verse that he's misquoting is not something which is tertiary. It's not a, you know, an irrelevant addition. It is the center of what he's trying to say, that there are differences between one text and another text. And the difference that he's quoting doesn't exist. I want to tell you that of all the solutions I've seen, I've not seen a solution. I cannot explain how the Ibn Ezra that we have in the printed editions of Ibn Ezra has quoted a difference between the Aseret Hadibrot in Yitro and the Aseret Hadibrot in Vaitchanan that simply does not exist in the text of the Torah as we have it. I can't explain it. And on that note, I will leave it.